I want you to do me a favor. Yeah, sure. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. What? Let it out. I want you to hit me. Trust me. Come on. Come on. Stop trying to hit me and hit me. Hit me, baby, one more time. And now, our feature presentation. Welcome to Hit Me One More Time, the Nostalgia Reflection Podcast, where we look at the things that we loved when we were younger, and we ask the question, is this good? My name is David Luzader, and here with me is the last uh, hornless unicorn, Nick Shermooksness. Nick, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I just go by corn these days. <laughs> <laughs> I... That's a great question. Like, why don't we just call horses corn? We don't call them unihorse. I mean, I had no corn. Whatever. We're not getting into it. That's dumb. I'm going to introduce our guest now because our guest is great, <laughs> better than my dumb thought. Uh, and that guest is Evan Tess Murray, creator of This Planet Needs a Name. Evan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Looking forward to it as well. Before we get to that, though, for people who may not be familiar with you and your work, just give us a quick overview. What is This Planet Needs a Name? What do you do? What are you up to? Well, uh, by day, I actually work in democracy reform. But the rest of the time, whenever I'm not sleeping, I write audio dramas. So This Planet Needs a Name is a science fiction hope punk audio drama, like an ensemble science fiction TV show with no pictures, essentially. Hmm. Um, I also have another show called Lighthearts, which is a sitcom, and I'm involved in a whole lot of others. Most of what I do is try to create interesting fiction with really cool people uh, and tell stories in a medium that not a lot of folks really know about yet. And I got to ask, you described it as hope fiction, uh, hope, hope punk? Yeah, uh, a defiant raised fist of optimism. Uh, the, the take really is just that the world is frequently pretty grim, and I like telling stories where we are sort of deliberately hopeful, even against a background of difficult things. So hard stuff happens, but it's always meaningful. Um, hope is always a valid choice. There are moments of joy and happiness in the middle of all of the difficult bits. So it's it's sort of a teeny tiny subgenre of people who just really need stories where it feels like the small human stuff matters. That's great. I dig it. Yeah, that's, that's something that it I... It is what I do. <laughs> that's that's something that I've talked about on the show when we did our Stargate episode way back in the day. I was like, man, I really just kind of miss hopeful sci-fi because I feel like so much sci-fi these days is like, ah, things are kind of grim and gritty and a little bit dark. Like, I'm really enjoying Raised by Wolves on HBO, but that is all like grit and darkness. And Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty deliberate... Uh, the joke among my friends is like, you can cut me all the way to the bone and all you find is this sense of like, I don't care if it's never getting better, I'm going to act like it might. That's, that's what I do for a living and what I do with my hobby. Um, but yeah, I love science fiction. And it's also true that a lot of it in commenting on the world tends to kind of lean into the everything is terrible. Um, and I prefer to have moments where it's where we laugh, even if everything is terrible. That's That's really it. Oh. I am, and I am the writer of that show, as well as the director, producer, and one of the actors. So, very much wow. my baby. That's yeah, that's great, people. I sometimes wake up in the morning and I call that a win. <laughs> I, I know this, like you. I I don't understand how you even have time to be on this show. I'm very impressed that you right. can come. Honestly, uh, 
it's a very exciting time for me right now. Work is extremely busy and it was really nice to have the opportunity and the excuse to take some time with some dear ones and watch something I loved as a child and think about that. It gave me space for something I wouldn't have done otherwise. Oh, well, that's so. good. Uh, why? Is there something going on in politics right now? Anyway, this week's topic. Um... <laughs> it's like uh, democracy matters real hard in October. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Evan and Halloween. Oh, go on, go on. Well, no, that. Wait, what are we talking about? Good lord, (laughs) we're talking about the last unicorn. (laughs) This 1982 animated film follows the unicorn on her journey to find out what happened to the rest of her kind. Now, Evan, you brought this here. Why? What's your history with The Last Unicorn? What made you... Because you said to me when we were discussing a topic that someone mentioned The Last Unicorn to you and that immediately clicked. That's what I'm bringing to the show. So please tell us why. It was my absolute favorite movie when I was about five and six, um, which is shortly after it came out. I absolutely, I just adored it. I watched it. I don't know how I watched it a lot because this is early enough and it's not like we had a way. I don't know. I must have known somebody who had a VCR. But uh, I cried every time I watched it. I loved it. And I didn't have the language yet to explain why I wanted to watch something that made me cry so much <laughs> and gave me nightmares. And uh, it did both of those things, but it also imprinted itself into my psyche in a way that, like, I've known for a long time is really deep. I've revisited the movie, but not in a really long time. And I have read the book, which I also absolutely adore fairly recently. Like, I I've read the book a few years ago. Uh but I haven't gone back and watched the movie itself, but I'm pretty sure, I was pretty sure going in that there are things I learned from this movie at a really formative age that helped create who I am. Like I was really sure. Uh The other movie I felt that way about at the same time was The Dark Crystal, which came out at the same time. Um, And I, but I have watched that one recently. So I already know how I feel about that. Uh, So this one became that, that moment where I was like, I know that this felt important when I was six. I have no idea what it's going to feel like when I'm 42. <laughs> well, that's, you know, and I, and I love that that's why you brought it here. Cause that's one thing that I really want to explore on this show is that there's the stuff that really forms us and then doesn't necessarily go away. But, you know, as we get older, we don't really come back to as much, but we always just have that little nugget of it in the back of our mind. And then mm-hmm. to get to come back to it and, and see, okay, now as an adult, you know, of course you're still going to have this love for it, but now a little more world wary, a little more, uh, I, I, you know, just, I, I don't want to say cynical because you don't sound like a cynical person, but we're more <laughs> cynical than our ch- child selves typically. Uh, just, just to see how those things right. hold up. Now, Nick, unicorns, thoughts? Uh, love, love unicorns. Really nice species. Owe me some money, but I'm trying <laughs> to forget about it. Uh, what about the last uh, one? What about the, the what? The last one. Well, that, that one's the worst. <laughs> um, no, no. So I, gosh, I, the movie seemed familiar to me, but honestly, I don't think I watched it when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely knew of it. I remember several years ago now, um, there was a, a comic book adaptation with um, Renee DeLiz, I believe was the artist. I think she I think someone helped her, but I, I think she was primarily working off of the, the, the Peter S. Beagle, the novel, or maybe there was a script laying around. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, maybe Evan knows. But, but no, go ahead. I'm not that much of a super fan, but I do know that Beagle wrote the screenplay. So whatever they were working off of would have been his work. 
either way. Probably, maybe it was the screenplay with some helping doses of the, the book itself. Um, so I, I remember that. I never read again. It's just more like it's it's been in my peripherals for a long time. Um, and so I was really intrigued to actually finally get to sit down and, and watch it. But yeah, I, I didn't really come in with, with any um, childhood formative. That's not. You you had you had no baggage going into this viewing. It was all, all I had no movie. baggage. It was light as a feather. Yeah, this movie for me is a movie that I feel, in retrospect, has been kind of like ramping up in the last few years to my inevitable watching of it. Uh, I didn't see it as a child, um, but I I, I kind of like Nick, always aware of it. Um, but really, even like watching it, I don't even have any memories of seeing any of this imagery. Um, which is weird because I, I, for some reason, I've encountered a lot of Rankin Bass movies. Uh, but mm. then when the comic series came out, I remember being very aware of it because uh, when I used to hang out my old comic shop, there was one of the the people that worked there. Just had like there like there was two of them there, and one of them had this love for the Last Unicorn, only to drive the other one crazy. And <laughs> I I joined in on uh, helping make shannon feel crazy by buying the last unicorn comics but not reading them <laughs> so they got my money uh it was a it was you a got him yep that's, oh. you got him good that's how it works um, but, and, and not, not because i wasn't interested in reading them it just like i just i god i have a stack of 200 comics i've never read it, it that's just how life is let's uh, just face it we all have a backlog yeah i'm not specifying of what but we all have a backlog I make audio dramas. The last time I listened to an audio drama, I listened to my friends' shows enough to make sure that I know if I can recommend them or not, and then I feel guilty. <laughs> that's that's what I do. Oh, I, I totally understand that. <laughs> Even just podcasts in general. All of my friends are like, I got this great new show, and I'm like, oh, sounds good. I'll listen to two episodes and then fall behind. Uh, I But uh, back on, on the movie... There was uh, back when I first got on on Bumble and and was the first person that I had like dated through an online app. I remember we like talked about the Last Unicorn a lot because she loved the movie and it just again was like ramping up and she made references to it and we joked about it a lot. That didn't go anywhere. I'm with someone who's much better for me and I love and that's wonderful. Uh, but are you okay? I'm doing great. <laughs> I don't know why it sounds like I'm having a breakdown in the middle of this. Uh, and the last unicorn is a powerful force. Yeah. I mean, for what it's worth, I sobbed a fair chunk last night because of this film. I mm, it, it got its hooks in when I was young, but there's some stuff in there. For me, this was a, also a new viewing, but it just felt like, okay, now it is time. I will now right. watch I, as the prophecy I just imagine the last unicorn being like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Like the the, the, the VHS, VHS box is like trying to break through the door while David's screaming in the corner. Um, no man, it's the the horn. The horn is just like busting through the door <laughs> while I'm cowering. <laughs> but that is our histories with the last unicorn, or general lack thereof. Nick, <laughs> why don't you tell us about the world's history with the last? Sure, unicorn? David. Uh, Peter S. Beagle, the author of the Last Unicorn, said there was interest in turning the story into a movie shortly after publication. Beagle was convinced that animation was the way to go, but was initially horrified that Rankin Bass Productions, Productions sorry, was the studio that was selected. The film was animated by Topcraft, the studio that had done all of Rankin Bass's previous productions, 
based on a screenplay by Beagle himself and dialogue done by Rankin and Bass. The final film ended up being remarkably close to the original script, and Beagle has come to feel that the film is actually a good deal more than I had originally credited. The film was released November 19 of 1982 and received criticism for its animation, but praise for its story, offbeat characters, and superb voice acting. I want to, to talk about the animation thing first, because I've seen a number of Rankin and Bass movies, and when I started watching this, I was like, this is the best looking Rankin and Bass film I've seen. So I'm a little bit surprised by that. What did what did either of you think about the animation? You know, obviously, it's been several decades. Animation has come a long way. Stuff from the 80s has a certain look to it. But what did what did either of you think about it? It was really hard for me to untangle my nostalgia reaction as a child from the 80s from my reaction now. But what really struck me was the backdrops are absolutely gorgeous. Just I every frame that didn't have a character in it, I wanted to hang on my wall. And one of my friends was like, this is a medieval tapestry. Um, because that is what it the backgrounds look like. The animation itself, I like, while at the same time seeing it as such a product of its time. Yes. But it for me, it gets the emotion of the story across very well, which is the point. Um, yeah, and I wasn't an adult in 1982 to complain about the animation. I was five, so I don't know that I'll ever be able to judge it in any way other than to say it works for me. I like it. <laughs> Nick, you're you're an adult when you saw it. Uh, how much do you hate the animation? I, I was very much an adult in 1982, despite not being born until 1988. <laughs> oh. um, far more mature than before my time, as, as someone probably says. Um, so yeah, I was, I think like Evan, I was immediately taken by the like the backgrounds there was a certain color palette aesthetic whatever you want to call it that just like really resonated off the bat um i do feel like maybe at times the animation got a little janky along the way um but again as we've been saying a product of our time though i uh, i had ne i never really looked up what rankin and, like what rankin and bass had done and now i have like this little like google carousel of their production films i'm like oh my god i've seen like at least 30 percent of these like the hobbit uh, the Return of the King, mm -hmm. and that's that's it. Oh no, actually, Rudolph the Red Nose. Okay, actually, I've seen a bunch of these. Yeah. Either way, um, so and I, I couldn't quite place it, but when I was watching it, I was just saying that there was something about the the, the animation in the '80s that just really resonates with me in terms of the style. Like, I mean, even the things that we can achieve now with animation, you know, thinking of something like, say, Into the Spider-Verse, you know, like, incredible, incredible, incredible stuff. And, like, it still takes a ton of work and, and all that to create. But I'm st I'm actually starting to have, like, this nostalgia for older animation where, like, they probably had a lot more, like, they were still learning how to make it good. <laughs> and I think this is an example of a film that, you know, whatever hurdles they maybe were overcoming, I don't know, but like they found a really interesting way to express the novel in animation. And I think that aesthetically, at least, um, I was I was really pleased. I think there's a tension in it between a very cartoonish aesthetic and then attempting to tell a story that doesn't live there. I, now mm. that I think about it, there's all those little details like the Red Bull's like drool um or just little details that don't fit their previous stuff very well by trying to add a sort of a, a heightened sense of emotion or heightened sense of sort of something real uh to 
Schmendrick's face. Um, Schmendrick. Oh, Schmendrick. Schmendrick. He tried. He's there. Uh, I think... I think animation was the way to go. I think that Beagle was absolutely correct because if this had been a live action movie, oh, yeah, oh, we, oh. we would. It would have been Mr. Ed with a horn on him. It would have been terrible. Yeah, it would. <laughs> yeah, th- this would be a movie that shows up on all bad movie podcasts. You know, it, it would be in the ranks of uh, um, the He Man movie in the way. Oh, that... What a glorious film! Oof. <laughs> though, and talk about it and look at it. Uh, but I still stand by. This is one of probably the better Rankin Bass product. I mean, go watch The Hobbit, and you'll just you'll be like, oh, jeez, okay. I don't think a character's moved for twenty seconds. Uh, this at least has a little bit of of movement to it. Um, I think a natural evolution from the animation is the music, because my goodness, that was oh. not something I expected. Listen, I just. If anything, this movie also inspired me that I want like an '80s ballad to be my life soundtrack. Like I, I wrote the word. Uh, the music is so unapologetically forward. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I put in my notes because it's just so. It's um, the band is America. The yeah. song is the Last Unicorn. It is so 1980s to have po- power ballad montages. Like there's like five. They will stare. Unbelieving that the last unicorn. Yeah, and they were all great. So I, I grew up on the the, the the Transformers cartoon way back when, and mm. especially the movie. And in the movie, you've got um, Dan something I can't remember his name, um, who did like there's a couple of power power ballads in in the Transformers movie that like just resonate in my mind when I think about. It. So this movie, I was right at home with this movie. I'll I'll say I took a journey with the the music of this film where it started and I'm like, oh, these ballads are really a choice. Okay. All right. I'm enduring them. And then we got to Jeff Bridges song. And I was like, bring back America. The duets. The the two in in universe songs. So I can talk a little bit about the Mia Farrow singing scandal. because uh, she sings the solo, the now that I'm a woman one, and she's not she's clearly not a very good singer. She wasn't directed. Oh, you don't say <laughs> If you're if you're a singer that is like deeply painful, I love listening to people sing whether or not they're trained singers. That one's painful. Mm-hmm. But then in the duet, if you're listening, you're like, that's not her. And it's yeah. not uh, because they recognize that she didn't have the voice for this. or she didn't have the ability and they still wanted to keep that duet. So they hired someone else to do it <laughs> and they cut the solo and ITC put it back in. So oh. that that painful solo is not it's not supposed to be there at all. Oh, um, that is interesting. They wanted the film to be longer, so they they put the scene back. This is what various sources on the internet told me. But uh, it because it's just so clear to me that that singer in the duet isn't her. I was like, that that person knows what they're doing. Right. Um, so it's, it can't. Either she got a lot better really fast, or they hired someone else to do that song um, with like a similar voice, just a lot more um, ability. Just so yeah, yeah that's that's that piece. I would be thrilled if they didn't go musical with this thing at all and so uh it's my least favorite part of it is that they 
they take the music from being this like separate character basically and they're like let's put it in the movie where yeah. the characters are actually going to do it for a bit and then we'll go back out again yeah. right it, i guess it it really wasn't consistent with the rest of the film Mm-mm. you know yeah that... like let me let me go back to america and i need this to sound like legend again yeah it's <laughs> it's just really weird that that is like a very odd choice it's like all right the the music is happening kind of around the movie it's helping kind of tell part of the story and you could even still have like a love ballad or a song about loneliness that they sing and just kind of underscores these scenes and i don't think jeff bridges is necessarily a bad singer i don't think this is his style where he shines in you know he's decently good in in, uh, i think it was crazy heart was the movie that he was in but in this it was like "Mm, okay all right that's uh, yeah voice Least favorite. I think it needed to be his character's uh, sort of transformative moment where the audience decides to be on his side, and I don't think it hits that particularly well. What's so? What's weird is I was on his side the moment that uh, he told the other old magician of the court that, uh, "Don't worry, old man. I'll write you a I'll write you a recommendation." A resume. A resume. <laughs> Come on, old man. I'll write you a reference. I love that's just such like a, like a specific weird throwaway joke that oh, yeah. I deeply loved. That was the, the the inconsistencies of the film actually kind of added to its charm in some cases at least. It's very clear from the first 5 minutes with the butterfly that we are oh. unstuck in time and we will be making jokes that have references to things that are not inside this universe the, oh gosh, uh, the butterfly, butterfly. Uh, the butterfly <laughs> what what an aggressive way to start a movie because i also wrote i wrote down in my notes how many movies start with an existential crisis because the beginning of this film is the unicorn being like am i the last one what right and the, uh, what does and that the, mean the, <laughs> yes and then the butterfly comes in and is like here's my vaudeville act <laughs> And then says, don't listen to me, listen. Don't listen to me, listen. And you're like, well, that's nice and heavy-handed. Thank you. I, yeah. I my, my show notes a lot of times for the show are um, uh, text messages that I send my partner. Um, and all I have uh, on the butterfly is, what the F is this butterfly? Okay, Nick. I, I put... Go ahead. No, no. Okay. I, I was just going to say, Nick, what does it say about our relationship that uh, that you're like the text I send to my partner? I'm like, yes, you send me a lot of texts about the movie that you are watching at <laughs> you, the time. You thought I was talking about you, which it's also true. You're, you're, I also send you a lot of texts. So. Nick and I have a very um, intermeshed relationship. We're not here to discuss that. Evan, you were going to say something. <laughs> my note about the butterfly is just, why is the butterfly perfect? Interesting. Elaborate. Uh, Interesting. Most- so mostly because it's just so ridiculous and off the wall. And also uh, something that I think doesn't get talked about that much. This is an incredibly Jewish movie. Yes. And the butterfly is doing incredibly Jewish humor in five minutes at the start of a movie, never shows up again and somehow sets the stage for like, this is going to be a ride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wait, wait. You're telling me this movie... Uh... Is Jewish with a character named Schmendrick. Schmendrick, who Schmendrick, <laughs> whose physical, ter- whose physical mm-hmm. appearance is um a little bit large nosed. I know. He also turns water into wine, sort of. <laughs> uh, and my 
creative partner who is Jewish was watching this along with me and their comment was not the first Jew to pull that off. (laughs) Which I was delighted by. But yes, uh, so I adore the butterfly because it's nuts, because it's weird. I often like, this isn't just because I love this movie because of its role in my life. I often like things that kind of break the rules about what we're supposed to do for storytelling. So I enjoy things that don't do the thing you expect, which means opening with a five-minute weird vaudeville act full of am I real and am I the last one? Um, eh, it works for me because it's unusual and it kind of makes me sit up and pay attention. I mean, the, the movie is definitely marching to the beat of its own drum for for good or for ill. You know, we've talked about some of the ways the the music works and some of the ways the music doesn't. It really... I think that's an advantage to the film itself is it's not trying to be the super normal family friendly kid fair. It is like, here's the story. It just is what it is. Either you're in for the ride or you're not. The book is not really a children's book. Um, it can be read by children, but it it's definitely not. So uh, it's hard to explain, but the, the unicorn in the movie, as we see her is very much a, basically a forest spirit, right? She's a, a wild spirit of nature. That's the sense of the book is it's about wildness. It's not a it's not a tame story. Uh, mm. And it's one that's much more philosophical than the average child is going to want to read. Hmm. So interesting. Yeah, I've actually yeah. been interested in the book. There's there's the this in, in Howl's Moving Castle, which is another movie I love dearly. I know. Our Me too. <laughs> Have you ever read that book? Uh, yeah. Diana Wynne Jones is one of my favorite authors. That is a, a children's book, but it's a. I absolutely love everything by Diana Wynne Jones. The book, I just recently rewatched Howl's and reread the book because my son cosplayed Howl um, after watching the movie for the first time. So uh, anyway, I rewatched the book. It's radically different from the movie. They are very different, but similarly delightful stories. And when I talk about that, I bring up The Last Unicorn because this is another one where the movie and book are different, but I, I couldn't pick one. They're both good at what they do. Oh, that's interesting. That's, I, yeah. I, and that's, and that's, I think, what more adaptations need to strive to do is yeah. let's tell the spirit of the story in this medium, because right. if you're slavishly devoted to the the book story, there's so much more you can do in a book, right? Like the one thing that Game of Thrones managed to do interestingly for a while is like so much of that, of that story is like in the character's heads and you're privy to their thoughts. And so trying to translate that then to on screen is so much more difficult, which you can sometimes do in a really bad ham-fisted uh, narration, uh, which I, I think most of the times if you can go without a narrator, go without a narrator. It's just good to just make make the story work for the medium that it's in. Yeah, and it's certainly harder in film. You can't, like, you can't, because you don't know what characters are thinking, it's a lot harder to make unlikable characters have some kind of rapport for the audience. Mm. Um, Because you only see what they do, not their, like, internal justification for why. Right, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So it's a lot harder to make them sympathetic. There's all these reasons why, uh, if you're going to adapt, figuring out how to translate that material is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this one goes with characters just say out loud the things they would otherwise be thinking, I think. <laughs> this is true. There are several times when the unicorn is uh, the human that she basically just like, woe is me, and like, here is all my thoughts about how hard my life is. And then you have uh, uh, the Prince Lur just 
telling everyone who like walks in with an ear death shot, like, do you want to hear about how much I love uh, Lady Amalthea? Because I'm also I'm a hero. Um, Did you know I was a hero? I'm a hero. Yeah. Right. Just the 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 whole he he goes off and he's like he like kills a dragon and other mystical creatures to prove his like to, to profess his love to. I'm like, who, like, a serial killer does that? Who does that? Yeah. Well, and she let the harpy out, remember? Uh, At the very start, uh, she made the choice to free this destructive beast some people would call evil because it, like her, is wild and immortal and deserves to be free, Mm -hmm. which is basically the movie's thesis, and it just (laughs) went ahead and put it right in front of us. But uh, (laughs) it's also a neat signal because she let the harpy out knowing that the harpy was going to go destroy the witch, like kill and yeah. and she was still just like it deserves to be as free as I do. Yeah. Um, right. So yeah, he goes off and kills a dragon, and she's like, "What? <laughs> what? Yeah. No. Big, why no. would you do that?" The I like that the movie doesn't say like, "And the witch ran away, being chased by the harpy." Make up your own mind whether or no, not no. she does. Legit, torn to pieces. Yeah. yeah. And and the unicorn is like walk. Don't run from this murder scene. Don't look back and don't run. You must never run from anything immortal. It attracts their attention. Somebody, I, I watched this with a uh, in a shared stream with a variety of my chosen family. And somebody joined the stream right before that moment who's never seen this film. And was just time. like, never run from an immortal creature. Is like the most uh, metal thing I've ever heard, and I don't know what we're talking about right, right, right. now. There's so much missing context. <laughs> and and Schmendrick, what what was Schmendrick? What was Schmend? I can't do it. Schmendrick doing with Ma, was it Mama Fortuna? Like just hanging out. You mean he's, he's just like so out of place with that particular brand of sideshow, whatever she was trying to pull off. Um, well, he was yeah. a sleight of hand pickpocket trickster trying to become a real wizard. So he also is 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 definitely a con artist. Yeah, that's, well, that's true. I, I will say I like that he spent twenty minutes trying to conjure magic to release the unicorn from the cage, and then he's like, "Oh, you know what? I have the key." Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I would imagine as a pickpocket, his skills probably came in handy. Was like, hey, the crowd is distracted. Walk among them and steal what money they haven't given us yet. Uh, but that's funny. You're right that he does spend time to try and, and magic her out of the cage. I like to think, as we were, we were talking about earlier, like they, they stretched this movie to get to 84 minutes. Do you think there was at some point in the process of like, can we have him try more magic? Can <laughs> probably. We, can we eat up I some think- time? It would be nice to have gotten a hint. Like his backstory and Molly's are both just barely hinted at. They're yeah. both, they both made difficult, weird, hard decisions, and they're both down on their luck, and they both see a unicorn and decide to live differently. Like that's the that's the the story, the transformative arc for both of those characters. But we barely get it. We yeah. we see them from the moment of unicorn on. Mm. Um, Molly especially. Molly is an interesting uh, character that. She has this moment when she first meets the unicorn and is like, I've been waiting for you for so long and I wanted to see you when I was young and now I'm old and you come to me now. And just has, again, another internal crisis about her life and gets over it really quick. She's just like, well, you're here now, which, like, which is kind of a sweet moment if further explored at all. 
but it's not. Yeah, I love it. In the like those lines, uh, absolutely flattened me when she says, uh, "Why didn't you come when I was new?" And where were you twenty years ago? Ten years ago? Where were you when I was new? I I cry, like literally cried. Molly grew hit when I was six, and she hits a lot different now that I'm her age. Uh, oh yeah, and, I bet. <laughs> yeah. So that feeling of having spent your life dreaming and never seeing your dream and then giving up on it and then having your dream walk into your life, yeah, I'd probably yell at a unicorn too. Um, I mean, but it, it, that was one of the first moment when I was like, oh, I'm about to have a different experience than I did when I was six, aren't I? Uh, yeah. The, the, in a pretty big way. Yeah. The identity crises hit a little bit different uh, <laughs> when you've had a God. few of your own. Yes. Uh, what I love, though, is realizing that that is the stuff I loved at six, too. So somewhere in me as a tiny child, the, the very adult things this movie is trying to do, like around the edges, are the things I loved about it. So that's mm. interesting and weird. And maybe I was just a really weird kid. Very possible. And, um, I mean, but... that, those are the best kids. <laughs> I liked the the philosophical stuff. I liked the question of whether um, a people seeing what they want to see, which is like comes up over and over and over again, instead of seeing a challenging reality, that's stuck. Yeah. Uh, and that's another, I think Molly's one of the people who says that. <laughs> um, just... Yeah, there's also the part at like the, the traveling zoo sideshow that is like, People want to see a unicorn, but they want to be told they're seeing a unicorn. Like, they don't want to have the belief because that takes work. They just want someone to say, this is a unicorn, and cool, that's a unicorn. Uh, the fake horn on the real unicorn because they can't see the reality is definitely a... It just... Who thought... Who read that in a book and went, I will make this into a movie for children? <sighs> Uh, apparently I, mean, I feel like all of the best movies from our childhood were things that like made us sad or scared. I mean, I, I got scared by a Care Bears movie, so what? I might not be the best. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was awful. It's also true, uh, though. A lot of stuff that was coming out. This is a huge year for movies, and a lot of stuff mm -hmm. that came out then we would now call a children's movie because it was animated or whatever. But they weren't thinking that way when they created it. Right. Uh, it was an everybody movie. And I don't think they had the same concerns as far as, I mean, not, not to say that there weren't people, you know, that were critical of like, what should we show our kids or not? Right. But I mean, it just feels like we're a lot more cognizant now is like the medium has matured and like what gets released has matured. But back then I feel like you could have these really existential or, or really depressing or sad scenes or something like that. And it was just like part of your, your life to experience this, you know, if you stumble upon it. To, to Evan's point, I think there's something about it being animated that for a lot of parents were just like, oh, this is a kid's thing because it's animated. Here you go. Uh, like the Secret of Secret of Nim being one of those as well. Uh, Love Secret of Nim. Se Secret of Nim same, rules. Same year. Yeah. But also, 1982. not a kid's, I mean, a kid can watch no. it, but you have to, if you want to contextualize it and make sure they're okay after they watch it, but... There's a lot of dark, creepy stuff in there. I have several friends who have told me that their first time seeing Princess Mononoke was way too young when their parent was uh, like, oh, it's animated. Right? Sure, you can watch that. And then like in the first few minutes, someone's getting their head lobbed off by an arrow. As you do. It's, it's like, yeah, you know, in the 80s, you know, if I was still working on Blockbuster, 
I would have been like, yeah, you know, here, like rent, watch, rent the, the last unicorn. But nowadays, like if a mom brought it up and be like, oh, I'm renting this for my child. And I would just be like, oh, hell no, that's not for kids. It's, it's still a thing. I remember a coworker of mine at one of my previous jobs had to be told that, uh, yes, Deadpool's a superhero movie. Don't take your kids to it. Right. It is not for them. Despite the fact that it's R-rated. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, Last Unicorn made me cry and gave me nightmares, but all of my favorite things made me cry. Uh, movies that came out the same year included E.T. and The Dark Crystal, both of which made me cry, and The Secret of Nim, which also. And I think I loved sad things because they felt real, um, and I liked mm. things that felt real. I don't love that we shelter children from emotions. Um, I agree. Yeah. Uh, but I definitely wouldn't stick my my about-to-be-six-year-old in front of The Last Unicorn without me. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's just so many times where parents would just uh, <laughs> on on a recent episode we talked to somebody who uh the, it was the movie Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. Their a lot of their memory of it was like their parents were having a party. So they put on Robin Hood Prince of Thieves just for their kid to go sit in the other room and watch. You know, being raised by TV sort of that idea where it's like no, you you can have kids watch these things but just make sure that it's contextualized and right. uh, when they are terrified or sad, they have the space to explore those feelings. And uh, yeah, I'm curious. Ruby, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say my kid can decide uh, for herself when something is too much for her. And yeah. she watched Howl's Moving Castle with us and decided she didn't like it because it was too scary. Cause I had forgotten how much of it is in fact, fairly scary. Uh, and yeah, it was, it, she just didn't like that part. She stuck around till the end because she thought it might get better. Um, and I love that she could do that, that she's five and she has the media liter literacy required to be like, this part I don't like, and I'm going to look away, but maybe by the end, I'll like it better. Hey, I mean, that's good. Good job. <laughs> on Good job on you for, uh, uh, you know, help. her mom. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> well. I'd be curious because you said this movie terrified you as a kid. I'd be curious to know what parts, and I'm assuming a lot of it is the Red Bull and probably the Harpy, but uh, what else might have been? I wasn't at all scared of the Harpy. The Harpy oh. seemed to know what she was and it didn't scare me at all. Um, I was really happy when the Harpy was let out. Um, and No, okay, so yes, the Red Bull, but the part that was actually scary that I had nightmares about is I had nightmares about being trapped in that castle mm. and nightmares about a clock that was broken that always showed a different wrong time, oh. um, which I is definitely not exactly in the movie, but is I can see where it came from in the movie. Um, but it was mostly about being trapped in the castle with no idea how to get out. And then the being driven into the sea was in there. The idea of being herded or driven like in my nightmares. And the part that was scary to me, it was the fact of like being trapped in the castle, forgetting who you are, um, which is exactly what's happening. <laughs> so. Yeah. Not shocking, I guess, that that's what I was scared of. But that's what I was scared of. Uh, I even as a small child, the bull was less scary for me than like what the bull represented, mm. which is power and control. Um, and when she turns on the bull, um, even as a small child, that was a moment of like huge triumph. Like that's what I wanted was to fight back. Nice. So this movie made me who I am. I swear. My <laughs> friends were like, "I see why you like this," and like, "You're missing a point." The point is, I I watched this, and that's why I am the person who likes it now. <laughs> there you go. It's yeah. a good way to put it. It's a good way to put it. King it was Hag so little. King Hagrid is terrifying, though. Uh, voiced by the great Christopher Lee, 
Uh, yeah. Was, the, the voice cast. And not as nice as he was cast. in the Harry Potter films. Just say. What? Nice. King Hagrid. <laughs> oh. Hagrid. I thought Hagrid. You, I thought you meant it's Christopher not. Lee was in those. I'm like, Nick. Christopher no. Lee was great as Saruman in Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry Potter. I, Harry Potter, the Wrath of I was dying over here because I was about to make the Saruman and Harry Potter crack. And you <laughs> got there first because I was laughing. <laughs> yes. Good job. King Hagrid is, you know, this creepy, de- decrepit old man. And one thing that you put in our show notes here, Evan, is who is good, who is evil. I think it's pretty clear that King Hagrid is pretty evil. But I'd be curious to know where maybe some of those other question marks come up. So for me, is the harpy evil? Mm. Like, hmm. That's a good question. What about, the, what about the bull, which is a tool of Hagrid? What 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 happens there? What about the skeleton that tells on people? What about Lear, who has been supporting his father's descent into horror for this whole time and hasn't countered him ever, Lear, but turns out to be a fairly decent guy? Lear is a hero, ha- all right? He told us that. <laughs> he did. He was really very clear on the subject, but somehow in his heroing, he failed to stop his father doing terrible, terrible things. Yeah. Uh, so it's just interesting. And the who is good question is just as interesting. Schmendrick is a con artist. Mm-hmm. I mean, Molly is never does anything that we look at and think she's not a good person, but she was living with a bunch of outlaws and who knows exactly, you know, what her life has been. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody she made rat soup. Like she, like, you know, she was doing good deeds. Everyone loves rat soup. It's true. Even on the third day with the same rat. Um, <laughs> it's a good toss off joke. Um, but yeah, it just, Nobody in this thing is particularly morally clear. There's a lot. And you're right. Haggard is the closest. He wants to control everything from a place of like pure selfishness. And he's he's evil. But everything else that you look at is is complicated. Yeah. I would even say the unicorn isn't evil necessarily, but uh, she is very um, aloof. She, yeah. she, you know, talks about, because I think it's shortly after uh, Mommy Fortuna gets just ravaged and killed by a harpy, uh, that Schmendrick is like, don't you feel bad about doing that? And she's like, I don't have regret. Whatever. I live forever. I'm a unicorn. What are you going to do about it? And That's without regret. Yeah. yeah. She's prettier than a harpy, but she's not good. Right. She's right. That's very nature. Much, yeah. She's very much outside of human constructs of morality. Yeah. She so. she cares about her forest, and we tend to portray nature as as like a, a force of good, and nature is a good thing, but nature also at the same time is sort of uncaring to human morality or concerns. Right. You know, av- right. avalanches don't pick who they're going to bury. <laughs> exactly. Except for, except for that guy. Well, yeah. Come here. I'm going <laughs> to bury you in snow. Can you imagine? This is one of the other things that hit me. Uh, I was a little kid. I loved unicorns. Many children do. But this was my imprint on what a unicorn should be. (laughs) This is not some pretty horse of the horn who, like, cures your problems and is perfectly kind. This is a wild spirit. Like, you can imagine if she could summon a, a, a giant storm to destroy the castle, she would. It's more or less what she did. So, like... She's very much wild, and that's the point, and yeah. uh, powerful, and that's the point, and should be left alone. And that's what I grew up thinking of unicorns as. Every other unicorn is a shadow of that. 
Well, you're not uh, alone in that. So spoiler alert for possible future seasons of The Witcher, anybody listening right now, because <laughs> I have read The Witcher books and uh, there are unicorns in that and they are very similar. They're like space aliens, basically. Unicorns in The Witcher rule. They are so cool. Uh, they're like these dimension traveling beings who do not really care about anything else and are at war with elves. It's pretty rad. Uh, but also the same thing where like the stories around them are like, oh, they come to virgins and they're these great, wonderful beasts. And then Siri meets one and it is like it is just a wild animal and they end up helping each other. But it is not out of anything of like, I'm helping you because I'm pure and good. Later on, the unicorns are like, all right, you helped one of ours, so we'll help you out. But we owe you no further. It's like, all right. That works. I like that. I think, as an adult looking at this, I think Beagle was probably drawing on the Japanese Kirin, mm. Um, mm. which is a, often translated as a unicorn, but they're a, like forest spirits. So uh, I don't, I'm not an expert. I've just run into that image and it, this hit as like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. That's not the Western, like, romanticized unicorn. This is a different thing. Um, but without ever explaining that, so... It's, it's funny how I feel like Western media, like the way they romanticize, like they romanticize a lot of things that sort of in their original incarnation or their original intention are usually a lot less, you know, it's not so much like the a Hollywood ending, so to speak, like it's a bit more objective or a bit more um, naturalistic. I don't really know where I'm trying to look for, but I think you get where I'm coming from. Yeah. Mm. As we are getting close to kind of the the end of our discussion here, and I know we've we've talked a lot around the movie and not a lot about a lot of specifics, uh, but I think we've had a very good discussion. There's something that Evan you put in our notes, and I think this is a, a perspective that that you can bring that Nick and I don't have, and I'd really love if if you'd be willing to share and talk about it. Uh, that you said the entire thing goes straight for the throat of anyone trans, and I would just love if you could expand on that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I watched this in a stream with a bunch of chosen family. We are mo well, not okay. Almost everyone in the stream is a trans person, I think, or pretty close. And uh, the idea that you are transformed against your will into a body that isn't yours was already horrifying. Then you're trapped in a place with people who don't see you as you really are, while you slowly forget who you really are. Mm -hmm. um, that whole it is that's more or less what it feels like to be a trans person in a home, for example, with an unsupportive family who just want you to not be the person that you are. Um, and when she says, uh, when she essentially tries to give up being a unicorn and says, I'll die to love you, which feels like this huge betrayal of who she is, that hit so hard because, again, it hit me in the trans feelings because so many of us try so incredibly hard to be something that we're not in order to please the people who love us mm -hmm. um, and that we love. Like <laughs> we love the people who love us and they want us to be people that we can never be, uh, but we sure can try. And so, yeah, that whole story, I wasn't the only one like over and over again, all of us were sort of in our little chat going like, ow, ow, <laughs> ow. <laughs> Uh, because it wasn't just like, you know, you can see yourself in anything. You can see these, uh, the struggle of trying to be an authentic self isn't, we don't own it. Um, but it's so focused on her body being the wrong body for her spirit, for who she really is. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that piece is just, we just really, a lot of us just really, really feel it. So, yeah, uh, they definitely didn't write that in on purpose. <laughs> 
Um, but wow, did it did it hit in a very very hard way, and it made the final moments, the triumph of the movie, uh, much more personal and powerful. When I say I I sobbed, I really did, because by the time we got there, I had connected so hard with this idea of of um, possibly forgetting the self, right? Of of being mm. trapped in in a in a body that is the wrong body your whole life. Not that every trans person is in the wrong body. That's that's a silly way to say it. But most of us have that feeling of not being seen as ourselves. Yeah. And like not being able to control how other people see us. And uh, yeah. So all of that was uh, <laughs> a profoundly different experience than I was expecting to have. It's an amazing takeaway. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing. Um, <laughs> yeah, geez, of course. I feel really bad uh, that I spent a minute over here trying to write a joke about losing your horn. I just feel appropriate <laughs> now. I, I was I was just going to say in the context of the film, the prince did say that he would still be with her, even though she became a unicorn again. So, yeah. So he actually, that's... he gets a lot of credit there for refusing her when she says, I'll give it all up to be with you. And he says, that's the wrong choice. I don't want you to do that. I'll always love you. And then she becomes something that can't love him back. And he's like, well, that's not great, but okay. <laughs> but I um, guess I'm into horses now. I don't know. <laughs> it goes down, down low. Tinder. There's actually a short story Beagle wrote, I don't know, a decade ago or something, uh, that takes place at the end of Lear's life. Um, And it's really lovely. It's an absolutely beautiful story, but it gives you the kind of coda, the like, the end of that story where he loved a unicorn. Um, And it's beautiful and satisfying and not what people would necessarily expect. It's what brought me back to the whole thing when that story came out. So, but yeah, that's when I say it it goes straight for the throat of anyone trans. Just imagine a group chat of several people all going, oh, hell. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I didn't know these feelings were going to be here today. (laughs) Yeah, we all had to like check. Everyone okay? You going to be all right? (laughs) Yeah. Seriously, again, thank you for sharing. That's a a really great perspective that I know Nick and I can't have. And I I love that you're able to bring that to the show. Uh, Yeah. Before we get to our, our final thoughts wrap up, does anybody have anything else they want to mention that we didn't get to talk about? Because I, I know there's still a lot we haven't talked about, but you know we only yes. have so much time in the day. Yes. The best line in the whole film, which was, shut up, you pretentious kneecap. How would you like a punch in the eye? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm stealing pretentious kneecap because I've been calling <laughs> some people absolute doorknobs lately, and I think pretentious <laughs> kneecap is just as good. That's pretty good. <laughs> Nice. I like that. It's <laughs> very good. Uh, I guess the the only piece that we don't need to talk about, but that I definitely wouldn't want to not mention, is the sheer triumph of it when the unicorns come out of the sea. Oh, uh, that was so cool. Oh, yeah. The, that moment, it, like they had to earn it, right? They had to earn that moment for it to feel like anything. Um, for me, it did. And so when they boil up out of the foam, turns into unicorns, and then they destroy the castle that has been the the source of their oppression. Um, it is absolutely beautifully triumphant. It's what I loved the most as a child, and I loved it just as much now. Um, for me, scene. the rest of the film could be terrible, and I would just want to watch that moment where the music does the thing and the unicorns show up and destroy everything, and it's perfect. Yeah, it's a really cool moment. Uh, <laughs> going back for just a second to that skeleton, uh, I realized, just found out he was voiced by, and I'm going to butcher his last name, but uh, Rene Abergenois. Boy, post-David, 
say it correctly and put it in here, uh, who was a, a great actor who was in 10 million things. And we sadly lost last year, but, uh, another, another Hulk. great addition to the cast. The whole cast is it's, astounding. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, Angela Lansbury, Christopher Lee, Jeff Bridges, Mia Farrow, Alan Arkin. Yeah. It's great. It took me way too long to realize that Schmendrick was Alan Arkin. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it was pretty just like Alan Arkin. I was like, oh, crap, he's Alan Arkin. It's just, I don't know if anyone else would have been able to do that. Like, soft, likable voice was so necessary for that character. Like, Especially because <laughs> he, has, he has that great line in any movie, which is, listen here, lady. Uh, I said that sarcastically. Great line in any movie. <laughs> Just a lot of movies yeah. have guys saying to women, listen here, lady, and uh, don't say that to people. Somehow he never quite pisses me off as much as it seems like he might. I think because Molly takes him out at the knees every time he tries. Yeah, <laughs> he should. He should annoy me way more than he did. It's, Alan Arkin's really hard to dislike. Like, they true. gave him the most likable voice in the world. I think it was probably very helpful. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> This is the part of the show now where we give our final thoughts. We've discussed it at length, and now we just kind of give our ruling here. Is this something that stays in the Hall of Memory, or is it worth visiting today? Evan, you brought this to us. This is a movie that formed you. You've now watched it as an adult. You've shared a bit about your experience, but if you could just sum it up for us. Do you think people should watch this today? Uh, if you watch it as a child, I'd say don't be afraid to watch it again. Uh, mm. It's certainly still... I, I connected with it just as much as I did as a kid. If you've never seen it, I think it's probably worth checking out if you know that you don't mind the 1980s power ballads and montages and red-tailed hawks pretending to be eagles. Like, if the stylistic stuff isn't going to bother you, there's a lot of really interesting story there from a time when I think we were a little more freeform about what we put in movies. So it's not an everyone would love this film, but I think it's worth checking out. All right. Nick, what do you think? Um, I, I really appreciate Evan's description because like you and I, David, you know, having not had a background on this, like I watched the movie and I think I, there was definitely a lot that I enjoyed about it, but I also found like in my, in my, my notes or my text messages, really, uh, I, I was... I think mostly jokingly, but kind of critical of a lot of things because it's it's a movie that in certain aspects of its production haven't necessarily aged well. Mm -hmm. um, so I agree with the sentiment that like if you experience this as a child, then uh, and, and certainly if you liked it as a child, then you might still very well you'll you'll appreciate things about it still today. Uh, I I'm still going to recommend it as something that's still worth checking out today, but I do think that you have to check your expectations going into it. I mean, that being said, I feel like everyone's coming into this for the power balance. Like <laughs> you have to at least <laughs> listen to those, you know, but um, yeah, it, it's not, it's, it's not going to be up to the same necessarily level of, of quote unquote production values that we might expect today. Uh, and honestly, I think an uh, aspect of that adds to its charm. So, yeah, I, I say it's worth checking out. Excellent. Yeah, this is a movie that is of its time in a number of ways. You know, the animation is very Rankin and Bass, which is to say uh, it, it's sort of the second rate behind Disney. Uh, <laughs> the music is cheesy, and there's the power ballads and the Mia Farrow parts where that's the part where you can go, you know, get a refill on your drink. But 
The voice acting is really great. The story isn't afraid of some of the darker moments or it tries to shield the audience from them. It's 84 minutes, which is always a bonus, I think. <laughs> it really is a, is a movie that while it's a mixed bag, I think the good outweighs the bad. And the bad is the kind of bad that you can take in stride and laugh at without laughing at the movie itself. Mm. Mm. If if you've seen it before and you're curious about like what it's still like it today, you probably will still like it today, but you'll notice some of the animation quirks a lot more. Uh, if you've never seen it, but all of our discussion and, and how we've talked about it has made you interested... I think that you would enjoy it. I enjoyed it much more than I thought I would, to be perfectly honest. And uh, I'm I'm glad, Evan, that you made us watch it. So thank you for that. This nothing coming in about whether or not you would have seen it before or anything. So yeah, uh, yeah. Who knows? I will not apologize. <laughs> you should not. <laughs> now, audience, we want to know: Do you have you watched The Last Unicorn recently? And you thought these guys are crazy? It's just '80s tripe, or? Do you love it? And everyone should be watching it. Let us know. Find out all the ways to contact us at hitmeonemoretime.com. We love to hear from you. Evan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. This was incredibly fun. Where can people find you should you wish to be found? So the really cool thing is that my name, Evan Tess Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y, I am the only one on the internet. So if you Google me, you'll find me. I hang out mostly on Twitter, Evan Tessaraya. So just look me up as Evan Tess Murray um, and Evan Tess Murray at gmail.com. Uh, my shows are Needs a Name Pod. So This Planet Needs a Name is at Needs a Name Pod on Twitter and Lighthearts is at Lighthearts Pod on Twitter. So we're in general easy to find and deeply invitational and very much like making friends. Yes. So everyone is welcome to come yell at me if you want, or just tell me how awesome I am. I like both of those things. <laughs> it's good that you're so open with the, with the options. Oh yeah, free real. <laughs> Evan, you are tireless. Uh, Nick, what do you got going on? Uh, you know, I was thinking of starting like a unicorn themed corn business with like sweet unicorn and grilled unicorn and um i'm kind of blanking on other uses for corn unicorn syrup there's that's there's, there's one that's in all the food well now. i've never seen um, the momentum of a podcast die so suddenly before <laughs> i uh, want to write a million jokes about high fructose unicorn syrup uh you okay well you know you can find me on twitter at nick shermooksness s-e-r-m-u-k-s-n-i-s and if you're not exhausted from that uh definitely hit me up and we can uh brainstorm more corn products together <laughs> uh, <laughs> and of course nick thanks for being on the show thank you David. if people want to find me they can follow me on the internet under the username davluz that is d-a-v-l-u-z twitter instagram see all the stuff that i am up to that is going to do it for us. Thank you so much for listening. We do this show for you. We do it because of you. Remember, you can't move forward if you're always looking back. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>